Well, good morning, everyone. We've been in a series here on, in the book of First Peter, and First Peter was written to those who were aliens and strangers in Cappadocia and Bithynia and that area of the country of Turkey, um, which some of us have visited together in years past. And uh, in that particular culture, it was... Uh, Greco-Roman culture, and uh, that culture was not very friendly, actually, to women, and neither was the Jewish culture in the first century. We'll pray in a minute here, but let me just introduce a little bit of the culture. In the Jewish world in the first century, women were little more than servants. Men would pray this every morning, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Uh, that was the devotional life of the male <laughs> in Jesus' day. Uh, when you start to understand this, you begin to rec recognize how radical and progressive, uh, well, maybe not the word progressive, actually biblical and uh, person-honoring the Bible actually is. Divorce was always in favor of men in that skewed culture of the first century. The uh, Greeks were not much better. In Greek society, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure, we have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, and we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and being faithful guardians for our household affairs. So if you were a wife, uh, you took care of the kids, and, uh, but you were not really intimately involved with your husband on an on a intimate level. Both male and female prostitution was indescribably rampant in the Greek culture. That's where we get the word pornea or porn. But back then it was 3D. It was not um, just on digital formats. Husbands found gratification with concubines and prostitutes, wives with slaves, both male and female. And prostitution, homosexuality, and promiscuity were inevitably resulted in a widespread sexual abuse of children, just as we see in our day. So um, this was the culture within which this text is actually written and uh, that we're going to study today. Rome was also, we looked at the Jewish culture, we considered the Roman culture or the Greek culture. What about Roman society? It was even actually worse in Rome. Marriage was little more than legalized prostitution with divorce being taken advantage of as often as desired by both sexes. Women who do not want to have children, they did not want to because it ruined their bodies. And feminism was, primitive feminism was quite common at that time. Desiring to do everything that men did, some women went into wrestling, sword fighting, that some of them actually became gladiators. And um, women began to lord it over men and increasingly took the initiative in getting divorces. And in the Roman world in particular, women were gaining some social legal freedoms that encouraged them to shrink or shirk rather their family responsibilities in favor of primitive feminism. So that's the culture in which our text today uh, that we study comes in. So let's pray now. I think we need to pray for sure dealing with this text. Father in heaven, Lord, we're thankful today 
that we can study your word. And uh, we live in a, a culture that is described as alien to your cause, and we're, we are seen as aliens and strangers or pilgrims in the, in the culture if we're living in accordance with your word. So today, if something hits us as strange, give us the, um, the spirit to want to do what your word says and not what our culture says today. Give us that heart to say, not my will, but thy will be done in my life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, the keeping and winning of husbands. <laughs> so, uh, and we could probably add to that the uh, alluring of husbands. This text has all of those nuances and meetings, and I think if we understand it, it will save us a lot of pain and hopefully give us some clarity as well. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be outward, arranging of the hair, wearing gold, or putting on apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. The purpose of this passage is basically to have a godly marriage uh, that converts those who are within that marriage. You might think that marriage was, to get married was just to have fun. Well, hopefully you have fun in your marriage, but it's actually a little more um, specific. It's supposed to bring you to conversion and sanctification. And it's supposed to bring your spouse to sanctification as well. That's the purpose of marriage. Uh, nobody else gets to know you that well, so they know all your problems. And uh, then God can use them to hopefully deal with your problems and you to deal with theirs. And it was not only to be a witness to each other, but also a witness to the world, in this case, the pagan world. And this passage is specifically saying how it is that women can be involved in the salvation of their husbands or the continuation of salvation for their husbands. And there are those who are mentioned in this passage, those who obey the word, and those who do not obey the word. So just like there were in our last passage, we studied those slave owners or masters or employers who are positive employers, um, and then there are those who are harsh or scolios. We get the word scoliosis, crooked uh, uh, masters or employers. And there are those that are good husbands and bad husbands, those who obey the word and those who disobey the word, who disobey the gospel. So they uh, understand the gospel to some extent, but they say, I'm not interested in being under God's spell. I'll be under my own spell. And this is the context of the passage. So this um, 
There we have it again, uh, just in case we missed it the first time. Um, so how is it that we can have um, be involved as women of God, godly women, in helping our husbands uh, that are converted, maintain that conversion, and uh, live with those who are not converted, who have rejected the word and the gospel, help them perhaps come to know Jesus. Well, what the text says, first of all, is through voluntary submission. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Be under obedience is what the word literally means. To be subject to, to be submit self unto them. This is not something that husband talks to you about. It's not, the, it's not the husband's job to tell you to be voluntarily submissive. This is something you choose to do yourself. And if some husband is using this passage, it's not even for them. They're actually reading someone else's mail. So maybe they should, should get out of your text messages. But it's saying to the wives, look, if you want to win your husband, then choose to be voluntarily submissive. Now, we just read what Jewish, Roman, and Greek cultures were like. This is a totally radical text to, uh, to anybody in that age, and it may be radical to you as well, to choose to be under obedience or submissive, that's quite um, a, an ask. But in verse 5, it's talking about how really when you're doing that, you're demonstrating not trust in your husband. How many can say amen? amen. But trust in God. How many can say amen? I like that better. It's a form of trusting God. And especially if you're talking to a husband, any husband, um, but especially if it's a godless husband. And that's the context here. Why would you actually be obedient or submissive in any way to a godless husband? You have to trust God, because that's kind of dangerous to figure out how to do that. How many would agree with that? This submission is not based on the husband's intelligence. It's not based on his kindness. It's not based on his good looks. It's not based on his leadership abilities. It's not based certainly on his superior spirituality because the guy is lost. He's disobedient. So I hear people say, well, yeah, I'll submit if this person is, you know, X, X, X. That's not what this text is saying. That's not the point of the text. The text is not a tit for tat. If he's good, I'll be good. No, he's not good. He's bad. In fact, he's harsh. In fact, he's maybe, I don't know, fill in the blank. And it's saying in that setting, <laughs> voluntarily submit. How many think you've got to be converted for this text? Not because you're less than either if you're the woman. Not because the woman is less than. No. Verse 7 is telling us that they're both joint heirs to the, not the grease of life, that would be kind of slimy, to the grace of life. <laughs> what happens when you put your slides in just before you get up? <laughs> and you took them from your notes. <laughs> Not because she's less than, no. She's a joint heir of the grace of life. Joint heirs. That means they are equally important in God's sight, equally 
uh, what would you say, have access to the grace of life. Both are made in God's image. And really, the reason you do that is because you're following the example of Christ himself. Christ came down to this world because everybody was perfect and he would have a good time with them. He came down because they were all intelligent and kind. He came down because, you know, he just fit in. He told, he told the, the, you know, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, I'm going down, I'm, I'll be back, I'm going to have a good time. No. He came down because the people down here were godless, because they were enemies, because they were sinners. And he actually came down and came in submission, and he said, it's hard, but I'm going to say not my will, but thy will be done. And then he said, you know, I'm just going to do what you say. He was in submission to his father. He came into submission to even his parents, who were sinful parents. I mean, they didn't even watch after their kids. <laughs> and he comes down into that society, and he is voluntarily submissive to the point of death, even death on a cross. He got killed by the people that he was coming to help. And this is the motivation behind this idea of voluntary submission. Did Jesus have to come to this earth? Did he have to reach out to save you? No. And so this whole idea is voluntary submission. And if you want to look at a provocative text, look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 28. If you want to look in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is talking about the resurrection of Christ and all the way to the consummation when he comes back again. Verse 27 says, He has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things under his feet, it's evident that he who put all things under his feet is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, verse 28, then the Son himself will be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. In other words, the submission of Christ not only happened when he came to this earth, he not just didn't think it robbery would be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and became obedient even to the point of death. No, 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 no. Not just there. This text is saying he maintains a role of submissiveness eternally. Get a load of that for a minute. He takes a Jesus role to maintain, I'm going to suggest, to maintain um, an atmosphere where people can actually effectively see what it means to have a different role, not a lesser role, but have different roles in the heavenly society, just like sometimes we're called for different roles in this society. It's the foundation of order. This whole idea of submissiveness, that's biblical. And the motivation here is for what purpose? To be like Jesus and to win the husband who is lost. How many want to win the husband who is lost? The ladies don't want to raise their hands because their husbands are going to say, you think I'm lost. 
How many think it's a good thing to win people who are lost? This is the whole idea, and it's being like Jesus to have volunteer submission. And volunteer submission is called for by both male and female and children and all kinds of things in the Bible. We're just focusing on women right now in this particular passage. Um, So let's go on. So through a Christ-like voluntary submission, that's A. B, through submission that is exclusive. I just read to you that in Roman society, uh, the the, um, relationship between men and women was not exclusive. They had women who would come alongside the man for intimate relationships, and they had wives who came along to take care of the children. And this text is suggesting something different. Uh, like be submissive to your own husbands. Not to someone else's husband, not to someone else in the church, not another male in the church, not another male in society. If you want to turn a guy off, uh, start listening to other men about anything if you're married to the guy. Oh, I want to do what that person says to do. Um, If you want to turn a guy off, that's one way to lose your husband. If you want to maintain a contact with your husband, maintain an exclusiveness with your own husband. How many can say amen to that? That's the point that's being made. No quicker way to alienate and lose a man than submitting to another man, whether in church or society, or no quicker way than to gang up on your man (laughs) with other people. Submit to your own man, not to other interest groups. All right? Um, When you start to do that, this will alienate any man. That's why this this text is so powerful. Number two, uh, number three, submission that is heavily based on demonstration, not verbalization. Don't talk too much. If you want to maintain a relationship with your man in terms of winning him to God. That's what it's saying. Don't talk too much. How many of you have ever met someone who talks too much? How many of you have ever been guilty of talking too much? How many of you started talking and you realized, that's not working out for me? Right? And that's what it's saying. Through demonstration, not verbalization. I, I heard a pretty, pretty interesting sermon that, from the General Conference Annual Council, um, the opening devotional by Shane Anderson. He was talking about this salesman who, um, you know, he was a good salesman, but his wife was about to leave him because he was not a Christian and he was not doing what she wanted, and she kept talking to him and haranguing him. And he goes, man, I, and she says, I'm going to leave you. And he was like, I'm almost happy that you're going to leave me. And then he's in this hotel room, and there's a, he, looks in the, <laughs> he looks in the drawer next to his bed, and he finds a Bible in there. He's convinced his wife probably put it there. And he can just hear her yelling at him, nagging him. And he goes, okay, God, I'm going I'm to, I'll open it up. I'm giving you one last chance. And he opens up the Bible. And he opens it up to a text in Proverbs that says that a nagging wife is like a leaking faucet. 
like the dripping faucet, and he goes, this is truth. <laughs> and when he says, man, this Bible must have a lot of truth, it led him to, to start, sh he shared that scripture with his wife. He thought it might be a good thing to share. And ultimately, he was baptized and came into the church. Submission that is heavily based on what? Demonstration, not verbalization. The primary influence is not the speech of the wife, but the conduct of the wife in the passage. Talk is, actually in this case, talk is very expensive. It will sink your marriage if you don't understand this. And... Loose lips will sink your battleship. So instead of talk, it's anastrophe throughout Peter. This is used again and again. And this is the idea of the behavior. Holy conduct. And this is holy conduct before God. This is not aimless conduct. First Peter 1, verse 11. Not aimless conduct. And then it has in that passage, like silver or gold. We're going to come back to that in our passage. But aimlessness is related in Peter to putting a lot of stock in silver and gold, which we'll come to later in our passage. I think it's kind of interesting. Aimless. That means if your conduct is aimless, it's not getting to what you want accomplished. Does that make sense? You might think it is, but it's not. Honorable conduct before the Gentiles. So the conduct before God, the conduct before others is um, what's needed to win or keep the husband. If you want to be involved in working with God and keeping the husband healthy in his spiritual walk or in turning someone who is unhealthy around. Through Christ-like volunteer submission, through submission that is exclusive, that is based on demonstration, not verbalization. And what kind of conduct? Chaste conduct. I read to you that in the Jewish culture and in the Greek culture and in the Roman culture, the conduct of women was largely not chaste. Does that make sense? And they might have been talked into it by their husband. Um, or they might have done that themselves, in the Roman culture especially, but morally pure is what this means. Morally clean by your good works, which they observe. And a line maybe I thought to remember this one was, choose to be what you want to see in your husband. Through your mirror neurons or his mirror neurons. If you want him to be a certain way, act a certain way. And pretty soon he may be acting the way you want. Does that make sense? That's the whole point here. Through your chaste conduct, you can actually have great influence on a man. And if you're not chaste, you can also have great influence on a man as well. So, through Christ-like voluntary submission, submission that's exclusive, chaste conduct, through conduct that is full of fear, Accompanied by fear, it says in 3.2. Now, this does not mean, as we mentioned last week as we were looking at the passage about masters and servants, um, this does not mean 
fear of the master. Nowhere in the book of Peter are you called to fear any individual or any person. This is fear of God. So your activity is seen by your husband as something where you're living in fear of God, in respect of God. It's not in fear of the husband. How many of you understand what I'm saying? That's the point that's given here. So you say, wow, this is a very God-fearing woman doing this or doing that because of their love for God. Fear of the Lord. Plutarch. This was radical, by the way, in that culture, according to Plutarch. A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. <clears throat> the gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it's proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. So what is it asking the woman here to do? Fear God instead of her husband's God. This is radical. This is, you might say, progressive. This is different than the culture. And this is why the woman in that culture, they could, they could be killed. The, the husband could at any time kill his children or his wife or get a new wife in some of these cultures. So when you're doing this, uh, you could think it means fear of the husband, but it's actually fear of God. You have to really have a confidence in God to pull this off. All right? That's what it's saying here. What kind of conduct will not work? How many would like to have something that you for sure know does not work? And that's what it says next. It says, it gives you an idea. Do not let your adornment be outward. Um, and in some translations, like I read it first, merely is added. It's not in the original. Don't let it be outward, arranging of the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. So this is, the, that's, this is something that will not work. I think it's a secret that Victoria does not know about. It does not work. Okay? So now the secret's out. It does not work. Conduct that is not useful in winning or keeping a husband is... Adornment. The word is cosmos, where we get the idea of cosmetics. If you go to any store, there is a huge section that is full of what? Stuff that does not work. Okay? So, like a whole section that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> arranging of the hair. This was elaborate braiding and plating of the hair. Wearing of gold. Literally mean, wearing means putting around, putting on, putting it around your neck, putting it around your finger, putting it through your ear, putting it in your nose, around something of your body, saying it doesn't work. Putting on of apparel. I don't think it's calling for nudity. Uh, this is, uh, uh, let's not go too far here with the text, amen. But it is... Uh, it can be overdone. So let's look at what that actually meant. Dress in the Roman uh, world for the Roman woman. Here's how their hair was done. This took a long time to do this. Um, it would take hours to have the plaiting of the hair. It was um, something that was held together with various pens. These are some of the pens that they found. And these are not 
Look at that. that. That would be costly to make something like that in that time and even this time. Look at those jewels that are meant there. Those were called castanets. And these castanets were sought after. This is some of the putting on of gold from that time. This is uh, Mithra, I think, one of the sun gods. And these are other ornaments they found. Here's a, a uh, portrait of a lady in the mid-Roman period, around Christ's time, putting on of gold. Do you see that? Anything around a, pa a body part there? And then they see the castanets hanging down. And then the plaiting of the hair, you see the pin in the top. And then those curls, those didn't just curl naturally. And that braiding, this would have taken a long time to get that together. From the smallest jewel casket is produced an ample patrimony. In other words, you could, you, could, you could have a will made out of that thing. You could have enough money. A single thread is suspended a million sesterces. One delicate neck carries about it forced in islands. The slender lobes of the ears exhaust a fortune. On the left hand, on every finger, plays a single money bag. Such are the powers of ambition, or am ambito, equal to bearing on one little female body the product of such copious wealth. So in the culture, what was seen was an opulence and, you might say, an adornment in every way that you could see. And these people, like Tertullian and others, were decrying this. They would have been right in line with what we see here, Peter writing. Cosmetics contributed to the woman's prestige and marked her social status. You can see there the woman sitting there, and she has a person holding a mirror. Others are working on her, and then you have the oil ointment. A functor would anoint his mistress with perfumed oil, and a cineflow or a cineraris would curl her hair. A cosmita was in charge of makeup, and another ancilla might hold up the mirror, and Ornatrix seems to have been in charge of beautification and adornment generally. So uh, they were very serious about um, what Peter is talking about in that culture. The paraphernalia of beauty and beauty rituals also marked status, and such things were actually even depicted on tombstones. Look at that tombstone got a picture of the person's mirror and of their cosmetic case. I don't know if any of you are that committed to your cosmetics. But this in that culture, when he's talking about this, this is something to die for. And when you died, you actually put down there, here's my head cosmetician, here's my hairstylist. They're basically who made me who I am. And they find many of these tombs. Too much adornment might be linked with refusal to bear children, like I mentioned in the introduction. Fashion and exclusive engagement with the self was antithetical to childbearing. What if I have children? My, my body won't look the same. Everything will move down and shift to the left. I don't want that. I, I want this. I want that. Um, she who wants to appear beautiful harms her womb. Um, Bound by her vanity and finery, the adorned woman subverted the ties of family and household by her infertility. Fashion, therefore, bred social disorder. 
The adorned woman showed an extreme culpable obsession with herself and with the self as a social spectacle rather than displaying devotion to her husband or family. There it is. Even in the culture of that time, they realized this is not submission to the, to the, to the husband that God is calling for. And it's not going to work if you're trying to convert your husband. Let me think this is pretty clear. Everybody's silent right now. Maybe I should go talk to another group. But this, but this, is, this is the culture. Love of adornment was paradoxically entailed a rejection of the tradition's feminine role. First, because of an obsession with the dress self meant a lack of interest in husband, household, and children. And in 1 Timothy, what does it say? That you'll be saved through childbearing. This is the same kind of text that we find from the first century. Salvation was related to faithfulness within the family role, not only for the woman, but also for the, for the husband. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity with holiness and sobriety. So instead of going with the culture that said, I'm into cosmetics and myself and, and everything I can adorn myself with, no, I'm going to adorn myself with children who are, 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 you know, pearls of great price. My pearls are my kids. They're zealous. They're truthful. They're <laughs> great kids. Now, fast forward to the early American Christian context. You might find this interesting. The Puritans, who wanted to be pure and chaste, they came to America. And James, King James, when he became the king, he came down from Scotland to England in 1606. And when he came down there, the Puritans met him what was called the Millennial Petition. What was it called? It's only a thousand things they wanted the king to change. A thousand things. Okay, just a few things, James. We don't want to overwhelm you, but a thousand things. One of them was very interesting to me as I read it. Puritans would not sign up to the idea of the surplice that's wearing this little doily around your neck as a priest. The cross, confirmation, the use of rings and weddings, and all other remnants of symbolic religion in the English church were perfectly good and holy practices. And James said, look, if you, set, if you talk about these wedding rings and if you talk about jewelry again, I'm going to harry you out of the land. That does not mean a hair transplant. That means like the jet that they have there, a harrier jet, I'm going to attack you and kick you out of the country if you don't start to stop talking about 1 Peter chapter 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 25, and the book of Exodus, and all these different places I talk about this. Don't talk about it anymore. So guess what they did? Those who would not sign or subscribe, as the word of the time went, were expelled. A total of 80 ministers from a body of 8,000. So there were 80 ministers that said, we're going to talk about it anyway in our sermon. Can you see how much of a remnant I'm representing? <laughs> 80 ministers from a body of what? 8,000. 99% of the Church of England, in other words, thought conformity the better path. The problem with conformity in any area is that it can lead to conformity in every area. 
Because when do you stop resisting the culture? How many of you are following what I'm saying? When do you stop doing that? Well, I'll just do it for this or that. Seems like a little thing. Everybody else is doing it. But if you want to win, if you want to really lead someone to a deeper spiritual life, live within the confines of God's will, and that will work, but this will not work. Will not work. Well, um, 1% who did not, the 1% who did not follow or subscribe became a time the leaders of the Pilgrim Fathers. They were overwhelmingly young, idealistic people. These were not old fogies, these were young fogies. <laughs> a tiny minority, no more than a couple hundred in England as a whole. And they came, and by the way, you know what they founded? Harvard University. They counted Harvard University. They started true education for ministers and their wives. How many think that's kind of interesting? And it was by not just their verbalization, but by their demonstration. And that's why many churches, I, I, I could show you from the Mennonite background, from the Baptist background, many, many, many churches had this same idea early on. We don't hear about it much today, but it certainly was there. Now, let's think just for a moment of the Adventist context. Would you like to see something from the Adventist context? Because they're coming out of that early American Christian context. Uh, now they're a couple centuries later. They're coming about 18, um, 1844, 1863, the first Adventist. Here's Ellen White writing to someone in uh, 1882. A lady accompanying a physician in the institution was visiting Sister someone's room one day when the latter took out of her trunk a gold necklace and a chain and said she wished to dispose of this jewelry and put the proceeds into the Lord's treasury. Said the other, why do you sell it? I would wear it if it was mine. Why, she replied. Well, when I received the truth, I was taught that all these things must be laid aside. Surely they're contrary to the teachings of God's word. And she cited her hearer to the words of the apostles, Paul and Peter. We're reading Peter today upon this point. And like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair, gold or pearls or costly array, but rather what becometh a woman professing godliness with good works, whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning or plaiting of the hair or wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden heart of the man in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. Do these texts sound familiar? So Ellen White's quoting this, not this, but that. Uh, my nuts and butts are out there a bit. But in answer, the lady displayed a gold ring on her finger given to her by an unbeliever and said she thought it no harm to wear such ornaments. We're not so peculiar, she said, or particular as formerly. Our people have been over-scrupulous in their opinions about the subject of dress. These ladies of this institution wear gold watches and gold chains and dress like other people. That's not good policy to be singular in our dress, for we cannot exert so much influence. Would you like to see what Ellen White said? Or would you rather not? You'd rather be ignorant of this. <laughs> we inquire, is this in accordance with the teachings of Christ? Are we to follow the word of God or the customs of the world? Our sister decided it was the safest to adhere to the Bible standard. 
Will Mrs. D and others who pursue a similar course be pleased to meet the result of their influence on that day when every man shall receive according to his works? God's word is plain. Its, teacher, its teachings cannot be mistaken. Shall we obey it just as he has given it to us? Or shall we seek to find how far we can digress and yet be saved? Or that all connected with our institutions would receive and follow the divine light and thus be enabled to transmit light to those who walk in darkness? Wait a minute. It sounds like she's been reading First Peter and how conduct actually... <laughs> can speak volumes. Conformity to the world is a sin which is sapping the spirituality of our people and seriously threatening with their usefulness. It is idle to proclaim the warning message to the world while we deny it in the transactions of daily life. When my wife and I got married, we talked about whether or not we'd wear rings. She was working all day with all men. I was working all night with all women. I worked as a nurse. She worked as an architect. We passed each other on the road back and forth to work. I'd wave. She was going in. I was working night shift at that time. And uh, I happen to think my wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. And, uh, you know, so did some other guys think she's beautiful. They ask her out. And she happens to think I'm the most beautiful guy in the world. And there were some girls at work. I don't know if you remember this, dear. They started giving me flowers. I started to get a bouquet from this person and that person because I looked good back then. You know what I did to those flowers? I said, man, these are great flowers. Thank you so much. I'm taking them to my wife. <laughs> she got all these flowers. She goes, honey, you're getting me so many flowers. <laughs> See, I don't have any problem with someone asking my wife out. I have a problem if she says yes. <laughs> and I don't have any problem confessing my love for my wife with someone. And I think confessing my love with my wife to someone and talking with them and the way I behave myself is actually a greater deterrent than anything I could wear. And that's what God says. He says, if you confess my name before men, I'll confess your name to the Father in heaven. Not if you wear a cross will I confess your name. If you verbalize it, if you start to confess Christ, then I'll protect you. I don't know, seems to have worked. We got four kids, we're still married. So, when Christ dwells in the heart, the soul will be so filled with his love, with the joy of communion with him, that it will cleave to him, and then the contemplation of himself will be forgotten. Love to Christ will be the spring of action. Those who feel the constraining love of God do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements of God. They do not ask for the lowest standard, but aim at perfect conformity to the will of the Redeemer. With earnest desire, they yield all and manifest an interest proportioned to the value of the object which they seek. A profession of Christ without deep love is mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. Talk is... Now you're confused. <laughs> so what kind of conduct then will work? 
He's saying what will not work, what will work. But rather let it be the hidden person of the heart, 3 verse 4. What does that mean? Hidden means private. So if you want to be decked out, turn it around and be decked in. A person, hidden person, that means the countenance. So the private life, the countenance, the way you look at your man of the heart, the thoughts and feelings, literally. The thoughts and feelings you share are more important than anything you could wear. And it says that is what is incorruptible. The word incorruptible is interesting. It means immortal, undecaying, can't be changed. How many want something that is immortal, undecaying, can't be changed in your relationship with your wife? Or in your relationship with your husband? They say a diamond is forever, but it ain't. That's not forever at all. But this is. How many like to go for something that lasts forever? What exactly then is this? Well, he drills down in our verse, verse 4, a gentle, that is a humble, quiet, that is a peaceable, literally means keeping one's place as ordained by God, not ordained by the husband, how God is asking you to roll. A quiet spirit. This is a mental disposition. This is something that God puts in your heart and your mind. It's what's leading to the whole thing. Which is very precious. Wait a minute. (laughs) Don't let your adorning be with precious stones or this or that, but rather something that's precious, that's internal, and it's using this word very precious again, which means literally extremely expensive, very costly, of great price. So what's of great price? Gold? Silver? Diamonds? No. That's nothing. What's of great price is what? A gentle, quiet spirit, a hidden, private emotions of the heart. Now I wanted to show you something in this context. Go back and let's look up another text. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 18. And this is actually just amazing when I saw this as I was studying. Um, but it's not in 2 Peter chapter 1, it's in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm looking at 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, that is, perishable things. Like silver or gold. (laughs) So silver and gold are what? Perishable things. From your aimless conduct. So if you're wearing silver and gold, it's related to what in the text? Aimless conduct. It is not going to get what you want out of your conduct. It's aimless. Aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers. Many times the reason people are wearing adornment and different things is simply tradition. And sometimes, like let's take for instance engagement rings, they were they came up with these idea of engagement rings um, from the Kimberlin mines in Africa. They wanted to sell some little diamonds, they had this little fragment diamonds. So well maybe this is the way we could market that. 
So they went with a marketing thing, and then people bought into that. That's a, that's a, a tradition. Does that make sense? And does it, according to the Bible, actually help you in your relationships? No. It's aimless. How many think that's a pretty interesting text? Well, what should you have in place of it? Verse 19. Not with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Whoa! So, what is it I need in my relationship if I want to maintain, help my husband maintain a spiritual life? I need to be talking about the blood of Jesus. I need to be covered with the blood. I need to understand the blood. I need, and I went through all the texts this morning. I won't do it with you now, but you just look up. You put Jesus' blood or Christ's blood, and you look at all the power that's there. And so what it's saying is somehow, instead of that external stuff, bring in discussions of Christ's blood. That's what's going to protect you and your marriage. If we walk in the light, as he in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from every sin as we walk in the light. How many think if the blood came into your life and cleansed you from every sin and your husband from every sin, that might make your marriage better? And how many think it might put you in fellowship one with another that's actually closer than anything else you've ever experienced. That's the point. Okay, so let's review. Through Christ-like voluntary submission, through submission that's exclusive, submission that's based on demonstration, not verbalization, chase conduct, conduct that is full of fear, conduct that will not work, conduct that will work, we've looked at, and now finally, it ends with general examples. What's it say next? For in this manner... Verse 5, the holy women who trusted their husbands, is that what it says? Who trusted the culture, is that what it says? Who trusted what other people told them they should do to maintain a healthy relationship, is that what it says? They trusted who? And where is it that you find out what God says? The Bible. So, in this manner, like in former times, the holy men, women, or rather, trusted in God, also did what? Adorn themselves. Now, how did they adorn themselves? Being submissive to their own husbands. What? Holy women of old, this would be like, you know, Sarah, Rebecca, they trusted in God, they submitted to their husbands because they believed that God would honor that, and that to them, literally, the text is literally transmitted, adorned by submitting to their own husbands. What? You want to buy some adornment? This is it. By submitting to your own husband. That is the most costly, precious, blood-bought, influential adornment you could ever have. This does not mean following your husband to do something wrong, because, again, you're submitting to God, the fear of God. But how many think that this is actually a very beautiful passage when you understand it? Working in ministry with your husband or working in ministry for your husband. Specific example then given as we close. 
as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid of any terror. Now, I don't want you going out here saying, well, honey, you know, you need to start calling me Lord. Um, what in the world does that mean? I looked it up, you know, Lord and Abraham. And I was like, where is that? Where did she actually call Abraham Lord? Sarah voluntarily listened and heeded and conformed to what Abraham had to say. And by the way, Abraham came up with some kooky ideas sometimes. How many of you have ever read the story of Abraham? He's like, you know, say you're my sister. Oh, that was stupid. It was stupid not only the first time, it was stupid the second time. Right? And she tried to go along. Okay, I'll say that. Then she gets like, taken away, first of all, by Abimelech and then by Pharaoh. And then God has to step in because she's honoring God. Right? So God protects her, brings a plague so that Pharaoh can't take advantage of her. And Abimelech says, why didn't you tell me she's your wife? And by the way, she was beautiful, even though she was like 99, like she was the most beautiful person. How many want to be beautiful like Sarah? So she didn't, she didn't compromise on anything. And in the context, it wasn't by wearing gold. So listened and heeded and called Abraham Lord. Where did she call him Lord? Genesis 18, 12. Do you remember when those three angels came with their messages? The three angels' messages? And they came to visit one day. How many remember that? And they visited. And they were talking to Abraham. And they said to Abraham, what? We know you're old. And we know Sarah's old. But you're going to have a child. And Sarah's listening in the tent. And what does she do? She laughs. And then Abraham comes out. And she goes, look, uh, did you laugh? She goes, well... My Lord, <laughs> I'm old, and my Lord's also old. You see, this was just in the normal discourse. It's like they're talking. Well, my Lord, you're old, <laughs> and I'm old. It wasn't like something that she had to think about doing. It was a form of respect for Abraham, even though it sounded like he had three new friends that came up with a very harebrained idea. My Lord. You're old. <laughs> I'm old. I just love that. How many of you like that? Now, you're going to like this when you get older. Right now, you don't like it because you're not old. But I'm getting older, and I liked it. Let me can see why I liked it. My Lord, you're old. And, and, and this is talking about intimacy between a husband and a wife. We're, we're too old for that. No, no, no. God says, even though I'm 99. <laughs> It's time. Can you say amen? God's got a great sense of humor here, right? So Sarah laughs, but then basically the, the idea is, and this is what I think is beautiful about this as we're closing this morning. Let's say you have a marriage that's not working well. You don't think your husband's what he should be. Maybe he's not. And maybe you haven't been what you should be based on what we just studied. I don't know. But you want your husband to be converted. And you want yourself to be converted. And it's gone on for a long time. Maybe your husband's 99. 
And you say, I give up. This guy is never going to change. And then there's this example here, after going through us, it says, don't say that. Because there's nothing too hard for God. Don't say that. Oh, that, pa- that pastor, you went through this text today, it's just too hard. I can't go against the culture. I can't go against my husband. I can't go, no way, God. And he gives this example of Sarah calling her husband Lord. And when you look at that, you go, wait a minute. These are two imperfect people. Did Sarah ever come up with any bizarre ideas? The problem was that Sarah, her husband, (laughs) Abraham listened to Sarah, and Sarah listened to Abraham. Both of them had bad ideas. (laughs) Remember when Sarah said, hey, look, you're not having kids. It's not me. (laughs) It doesn't work with me. And then she suggests something from the Greco-Roman culture. You go ahead, it's, even not, it's not even a Greco-Roman culture yet, it's a, you know, a pagan culture. You sleep with Hagar the, Hor- Hagar the Horrible. Are you with me? That was a bad idea. And then he comes up with some bad ideas. Both of them had bad ideas. But can God work with people who have had bad ideas in their marriage? That's the point. And look what it says in one last text, we'll look it up. You got to see this. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I think it's verse 17. Start in verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, that the promise might be sure to, the, to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but those who are. Of faith, the faith of Abraham. That's what he's called the, uh, the, the father of the faithful. Not because he was always faithful, but because he realized he wasn't. He turns to God, who is the father of us all. As it is written, verse 17, I have made you a father of what? Many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Can you say amen? amen? Verse 19, being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And what happened? Did God come through? And so that's what God says to me today, and he says to you. You know, you say, I'm not living up to what the Bible has said today in some way. Maybe I've given wrong ideas or wrong suggestions. Maybe I've followed things in the culture I shouldn't even be following. And what does he say? Don't give up. I call those things which are not as though they are. And things can change, wonderfully change, if you just trust my promise. How many think this is the word of God today for us today? Will it help you? Help your husband? Will it help you in your walk as well? Might even help you find the right kind of husband. And remember, this was written in Peter, and these people are now becoming Christians, right? They're coming into the church. 
but uh, preemption is actually a better thing than anything else. Let's close together with singing a song that I think goes along with what we've studied today. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Let's stand together as we sing. I'd rather have Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.